0: at this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer you a personal question? Now nah, it is seen at perfect time. What if I did the
1: opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal
0: endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. of this episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is typically my job to interview and deconstruct a world-class performer, whether they are from the worlds of, say, athletics, business, politics, military. They could be from just about anywhere, because there are patterns in the greatness, and there are recipes, tactics, tools that you can use. This episode is a little different, I visited the Googleplex, that is the Mountain View based headquarters of Google, and had a chat. I had a public chat, and I was interviewed myself. And I made sure by selection of the questions, I knew at least the first five to six or so that we would cover some ground that has not been covered before. So there were questions such as What has been the most important Stoic teaching that I've come across? How can we stay humble? How do I manage the many, many requests that I receive and the inbound that I receive? What are the, say, success factors or elements that have led to the success of The Tim Ferriss Show, this podcast? And the patterns that I've spotted, where do I see myself in five years? If I could pick anyone alive or dead to be in my personal board of directors who would they be? Three people, let's just say. How do I experiment with my dog training? These are things that many of you have asked me about and I haven't had a chance to cover before we get into human longevity, insomnia, etc. So I hope you enjoy this. It is a change of pace. It is shorter than the usual. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
2: Welcome, everyone. I'd like to introduce you to Tim Ferriss, author of The 4-Hour Workweek, Body, and Chef, host of The Tim Ferriss Show, the number one rated business podcast on iTunes, and a serial (coughs) investor. I'm your host, Jordan Thibodeau. So without further ado, let's give Tim a nice uh, welcome. So Tim, um, what has been one of the most important stoic teachings
0: so the Stoic philosophy is, uh, in essence, the operating system that I use for making better decisions or try to use. It's very old, 2,000-plus years old, in various iterations. And uh, I would say that you can start many places, whether it's Marcus Aurelius' meditations or the moral letters to Lucilius, the letters of Seneca. Uh, Cato is particularly interesting to me. And one of the lessons that I try to implement in my life comes from Cato. Cato was considered by many the perfect stoic. I'm sure he was not perfect, as none of us are. But he would regularly, for instance, wear (coughs) mismatched clothing uh, in high-profile arenas where that was frowned upon so that he could train himself to be ashamed only of the things worth being ashamed of. So he would practice doing things that would earn him the scorn, superficial scorn of others. And the form that that can take <laughs> is, can be very, very simple. And you can do it in very small ways. But I have what I would call, for instance, and this is a ridiculous example, but that's the whole point. I, I have my party pants, which are these ridiculous pants <laughs> That looks straight out of Austin Powers, and I will occasionally wear those, not to the extent that I would offend some guest, host, like dinner host, and some super. You know, I don't want to make enemies. That's not the goal. But I'll wear it in a place where I know that I'm going to get these sideways glances from everyone, to try to inoculate myself against that type of superficial attachment to what others think. Uh, for a while recently, I was wearing what I could best describe as like a creepy. Horn stash. It was a very <laughs> ill advised, half grown mustache that looked terrible. It really did look, it was like Chester the Molester. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I wore that around for like a good week and a half. And every time I would put up a photograph on, on Instagram or wherever it was, they'd be like, please, for God's sake, take that thing off your face. And it was just an exercise. It was yet another exercise. And there are many different ways to do this. But I, I think that, that would be one that comes to mind, is regularly practicing things that you feel embarrassed by but shouldn't, that have no grander importance whatsoever, so that if, when you train yourself to not be embarrassed by the small things, then when it comes time to make big decisions, stand up for something larger, you will have the training that you need. And uh, this is not necessarily Stoic, but I think it's Archilochus. I'm not brushed up on my ancient pronunciation, but the this is a military this is a military context. But it was we we do not rise to the level of our hopes; we fall to the level of our training. So I, what I like about Stoicism is that it offers practical ways of practicing this. The second would be practicing your worst case scenario. This is very similar. So it's kind of a larger meta example. Seneca, I think it's on fasting and festivals, or on festivals and fasting. I think it's letter 13, actually, in the Moral Letters to Lucilius, which I reread all the time. Clearly, you can tell. And uh, to says, set aside a certain number of days, say each month, which I do, during which you will be satisfied with the cheapest and scantest affair, wear the roughest of, cl- of clothing, etc. asking yourself all the while, is this the condition that I so feared? So practicing poverty, which would then empower you to make decisions because you know the worst case scenario isn't that bad. And for that reason, among other reasons we can get into, I do one three-day fast every month. I do one seven to 10-day fast every one to two quarters. And there are other things that I do on top of that. But those are a few that come to mind.
2: Excellent. Um, In your podcast, you've talked about the monkey brain. Can you explain what that is?
0: Now, the monkey brain or monkey mind is, I think, inside all of us in some capacity. It's this incessant internal dialogue, uh, or maybe not even a dialogue. Maybe it's just some stern or irritating roommate that you have in your head. And we can all think back to, say, uh, elementary school. I remember there was this kid in my class. He's always misbehaving. And I remember at one point, he got up. It was like third grade. And the teacher suddenly froze. And we turned around, and he had a fork over his head. And he said, I am the master of the universe. And he stabbed an electrical outlet <laughs> and just got like blown backwards. And you know, then there was this kid who would walk over and he would always, he would like build a, a building of, uh, out of uh, construction blocks, and then inevitably it would fall over when it got too tall, and then he'd just like lay down and cry. And I think that as we get older, we learn to not do those things, because you'd be put in a straitjacket. As a result they 're internalized, so like mm-hmm. all day we 're walking around with like some version or combination of all of those things and the, the context in which I probably brought it up, the monkey mind, was as it relates to my morning journaling, so I, I do regularly journal sometimes I do what would be considered morning pages, other times I use something called the five minute journal, which we could talk about but the the it, the goal is not to write per se i 'm not doing it for someone else i 'm simply capturing my monkey mind, its litany of complaints or insecurities on paper so that it's not caught on repeat for the rest of the day. I'm simply giving it a, a two-dimensional prison <laughs> or playpen so that I can then move on with my day and uh, hit mute at least for a brief period of time right. on those things. But it's, uh, I think that if you want to be less reactive, to be the author of your own life or business, career, whatever it might be, you have to be able to do deep work and think long term and rationally. And for all of those things, you need to get very good at identifying where you're being overly reactive
2: right.
0: to thoughts, to external factors outside of your control, whatever it might be.
2: That ties back to the five-minute uh, journal.
0: It does. The 5-Minute Journal is uh, it's, a, it's a journal that was created by a reader of the 4-Hour Week. actually. For those who have read the book, it, it was their muse. So, they're one of their cash flow focused businesses in the context of lifestyle design. But you take two and a half minutes or so in the morning and then again at night. And so, one is effectively a focusing and planning exercise. There's also a gratitude component, which I think is very critical for those of us who are driven, type A achievers. It's very easy to constantly be focused on the future. And just to pause for a second, I heard someone say that depression is an obsession with the past, and anxiety is an obsession with the future. Well, if you look at achievers, they tend to be very future-focused. And as soon as they hit a goal, they're like, don't have time to celebrate this small win. This isn't good enough. Bigger, bigger, better, etc." And that is a pattern that can be very self-destructive even if you rack up a lot of wins at the same time. So the gratitude component is extremely critical. That takes about two and a half minutes each day. And it also helps to identify your focal points or your priorities so that when, inevitably, that 10% that's left of the monkey mind pops up to like dance in front of you and distract you from your objectives you set out for the day, you can return to that. And then, at the end of the day, it's basically a performance review. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find it incredibly helpful and uh, uh, a lot of ROI for the time invested.
2: Excellent. So, it seems like it gives you a degree of mental clarity. Um,
0: yeah, it does. And I, and yeah. I think that you know, what separates, if I think about my podcast, I've interviewed 100 to 150 world-class performers across every possible domain, imaginable, sports, entertainment, politics, art, chess, it just goes on and on that the difference between somebody who's good like the, you know, let's just call it the top quartile of the population in their chosen field and the top 1%, it's the degree to which they can, they can focus to determine their goals and maintain that focus. It's, it's one of the largest distinguishing factors.
2: Excellent. Um, Now with people who've Achieve such success in in their careers or in athletics or whatever. um, What people do to maintain their humbleness?
0: Uh, Humility, I think, is um, not too tough uh, to maintain if you create the proper environments. And I'm I'm not a huge fan of self control Mm -hmm. or willpower. I think it's really overrated. It's like, oh, well, like. Fat people are fat because they just lack the willpower. It's like, no. That's a stupid, lazy answer or just a shite observation. Like, if you look at behavioral modifications, it's like they just have lack of incentives. They have lack of social accountability. Maybe they don't have the information that they need. Uh, and you can create environments in which you can train. And I come back to this over and over and over again. But uh, there are a few things, I think, that are very helpful. Uh, one is memento mori, so remembering that you're going to die. And putting, putting that, it's also very stoic. They're somewhat obsessed on about death, even to a degree that I find weird. But memento mori, so constantly revisiting death and realizing it, it, it forces you to put your life in a broader context of civilization in the world. And I think that, in and of itself, is, is very corrective. And how do you practice or develop that sense of memento mori? I have a quote in my refrigerator. That's from Marcus Aurelius. And uh, Meditations, by the way, is effectively a war journal. While Marcus Aurelius, who was the most powerful man on the planet at the time, emperor of Rome, was on military campaign. And he would write these entries to do exactly this, to remind himself that he was just a man. He was going to die. It would all be dust. And it sounds depressing until you realize the clarity and uh, lack of waste that comes from constantly repeating those types of things. Uh, then you have memento homo, probably getting the pronunciation off, but that is remembering that you are just a man or a person. So we, we don't have, we, those in this room probably are not going to commission like Julius Caesar, someone to hold a laurel reef over your head while you're doing a procession, like the Roman triumph to say, you are just a man, you are just a man, you're not a God. Uh, but the way you can very easily humble yourself is to always try to be the weakest person in the room in something. Like every day, you should be the weakest person in the room at some point, whether that is in a meeting, whether that is in a sport, whether that is in a gym, whether that is in a chess match, it doesn't matter. But I always try to be the weakest person in the room. And I remember when I was 15, I had my first time over, uh, overseas for an extended period of time. I was in Japan for a year, and I ended up being a judo player. I was competing in judo. And the high school that I went to was not particularly strong in judo, but I was the big fish in the little pond. And I, was, I got very high and mighty. I, th- I thought I was I'm just... Cat's meow, and I wasn't too overt about it, but I was very sort of satisfied with how well I was doing. Went to my first tournament, and I got demolished in seven seconds by this guy who weighed forty pounds less than I did. Like ipon kachi, you know, that was it. I was done, and I got up. I'm like, I'm fine. They're like, No, you're the loser. <laughs> you're done. You are done. And uh, I was so demoralized. And, uh, you know, I was the only white guy in the tournament. And it was kind of, they, they, so there were a lot of people just hoping that they would be able to kind of like wag a finger and laugh. And I mean, love Japan, but it's like, I get it. Uh, very homogenous place. So I ended up going after that to a, a cram school for judo, like a juku, and they have it for all sorts of things, at night. And I went to Tokai University's. Uh, Judo cram school. So Tokai University produces gold medalists in the Olympics. They're really, really tough. So I went in and I was 15 at the time and I got, I got just annihilated by 12 year olds. I mean, talk about embarrassing. I mean, if you can try <laughs> to flash back to high school and you're like, oh, you know, I'm a, and you're getting, you're a, like a sophomore in high school getting killed by like sixth graders or seventh graders. So embarrassing, including women. I was getting torn to pieces. And I got trashed for three or four months and I was like, wow. I, I don't feel like I'm making a lot of progress. My endurance is getting a little bit better. And went to a tournament that had the same competitors as the previous tournament, and just walked through everybody. Just steamrolled, because I had a better cohort group. I was the weakest in the room. Right. Uh, as long as you're trending in the right direction, it doesn't matter if you're losing. And so that would, be, that would be one approach. Just like every day, schedule it. Plan it. Be the weakest person in the room in some capacity.
2: Nice. So bring it to communication. Um, you have multiple people trying to reach out to you and contact you. How do you manage all of those requests?
0: I suppose the short answer is I don't manage all of those requests. Okay. Uh, the irony of the 4-Hour week, among many others, is that my systems have to be 100 times better now than they were when the book came out. Because uh, if you look at my assistants and the various inbound channels that we have, uh, or try to avoid, but nonetheless have, it's 1,500 to 2,000 direct messages of some type every day that hit me and my team. That's excluding all the tweets, Facebook mentions, Google+, etc. It's ignoring all of that. Uh, so the, the way that I try to think about handling that is having rules set in advance. So, for instance, if we were to take a, a, a corporate or startup analogy, you don't want to decide how to respond to a crisis when a crisis hits. If you think you're going to have a disaster, you want to role play it out and say, all right, if A, then B, C, or D. If X, then Y, and Z. And you have a plan in place so that, and this all ties back together, if disaster strikes, you are not reactive. You don't make a compulsive, or not compulsive, impulsive decision that could destroy uh, a lot of what you've worked to achieve, including your reputation. So with email, I have very particular rules, and I will block out periods of time. For instance, I'm going to take July, and I did this uh, about two years ago in Bali. There's actually a good piece in Inc. Magazine called uh, The 4-Hour Reality Check. Uh, that's that's not a bad read about this. But I'm blocking out July to focus on writing and deep work in that capacity. So I have to set up systems and rules in advance so that I don't have to be on email or calendar or phone, which is what I did for a month in Indonesia. I'm going to do it this time overseas. And the so the important thing is deciding on your policies. And I've realized for myself that I do moderation very poorly. Whether it's caffeine, booze, like if I'm on, I am on. <laughs> and <laughs> if I am off, I am off. Uh, so that is why I decided to take a startup vacation, effectively retirement, as of about nine months ago. I realized, for in, this is just one example. I was drowning in email intros to founders and cold emails and pitches and this, that, and the other thing. Whether I do 100 deals a year, 10 deals a year, one deal a year, if I have to filter and look at all of the inbound to make decisions it's almost the exact same amount of work does that make sense so trying to pare back in moderation is it's a it's a it's a fool's errand you just end up doing the same amount of work so i will decide like am i doing speaking engagements or not period am i doing say interviews or not period Am I writing for any other sites whatsoever, because I get hit by people who want me to write for this and this new startup, to write for such and such established media that's trying to branch into whatever? No. like The answer for that is absolutely not, because I'm focusing on my own writing. And the 5-Minute Journal, all these things help to allow you to practice that focus. Uh, and then there, are, then there are tools, right? So there's a very small subset, let's just call it 1% to 2%, that get me closer to sort of the mountain that I see in the distance, which, which represents the goals I've already set for myself. And I'll have metrics. I'll have KPIs, right? Key performance indicators for these things, like podcast growth. And a uh, great commencement speech by Neil Gaiman, everybody should check out, called Make Good Art. It's fantastic, but he talks a lot about this. And then the question is, what are the tools or policies, tactics, that help with managing that subset that I am going to tackle? I use tools like Schedule Once. For scheduling allows other people to find times uh, and to avoid the the back and forth. If you guys want to want to see something that'll be like painfully humorous, you can check out. I think it's Let's Get Drinks in uh, I believe the New Yorker. Somebody can look that up. It's you'll be like that is my life. I remember uh, there was a tweet that I saw recently, which was adulthood. Something I'm paraphrasing. Adulthood is saying sorry for the re- the late reply until one of you dies. It's like, <laughs> that is a sad state of affairs. So I'll use Schedule Once. I'll use a tool called Boomerang, which allows me to not just automate follow up reminders if I don't hear back from someone, but to set parameters. And secondly, this is very underused as a feature to send in the future. So the way you train someone, just like, you know, training a dog or a manatee or anything else, its the same stuff, there's a great book called Don't Shoot the Dog that you should all read about for training humans, also, uh, (laughs) is you can extend the time between which you respond to certain types of people. And it just teaches them that you are not on IM. Email is not messenger for you. Uh, So sending in the future, very helpful. Processing email. I use Gmail offline a lot. So, I'll process email, batch process email offline so that I don't have the psychological trauma of feeling like I'm doing whack a mole, where I send off two emails and I get five back, and I'm just like, I can't, I'm drowning, I can't do this. And then you're like, I should go watch Game of Thrones or whatever you use to procrastinate. To avoid that, batch processing offline uh, hugely valuable. And um, there are other things that I do. I'll give one more, which is if you send an email, try to think of if then scenarios, right? So, the engineers in the room, uh, we'll probably do this naturally. Just thinking in terms of scripts or algorithms. But if you send an email, you're like, "Hey, can you meet up next week?" And that's the end of the email. That's a bad email. So can, can you meet up next week? I suggest this time or this time. This is my fa- the, like my first choice. If you can't do those times, please suggest two or three times, like in this time frame that work for you. Let's set it for thirty minutes, right? Like being really specific, it takes, an extra 30 seconds on the front end, and it will save you 20 exchanges on the back end. So just always thinking, like, is there an if-then line that I should put in this email before you hit send saves a lot of time. But I try to move as much as possible off of email to things like Slack, Dropbox, etc., whenever possible. It was, I mean, it was designed for emergency military communication, not for what we use it for currently.
2: Right. Right. Um, so most of us here in this audience have listened to your podcast, and it's been wildly successful. What do you think drives the success of the podcast?
0: I think the podcast is successful because I, I knew I had a guaranteed audience of one. And that means I was scratching my own itch. Uh, in the case of whenever I try to design something for a market, it fails. Whenever I just do something that I couldn't find for myself, then it does fine. It seems to be the trend. So I'm scratching my own itch. And what I was missing was uh, <coughs> the long-form fly-on-the-wall conversation, but also the tactics and the really detailed, nitty-gritty how-to stuff. And uh, all the books came about this way. I was looking for something, looking for something, looking for something, and I was just like, fuck! I'll just write it myself. Like this is too annoying because I would gather all these resources. I'd be like, okay, I will at least compile this. And in the case of the podcast, I wanted to try to spot the patterns and all these experts. And I was already doing this type of prep work for the books by ferreting these people out. And it it, it happened. it just so happened that I would have these dinners or drinks with folks who are the best at what they do. And I would think afterwards, usually two or three glasses of wine in. Man, this is so good. Like, I wish I could just share this. Like, why don't I just record this? And then, if any of you heard the first episode, so sloppy with Kevin Rose, because I was so nervous, even though he was a close friend, still is a close friend. And he was just like busting my balls the whole time, because that's what close guy friends do to each other. And so I just was drinking way too much. And I remember recording the first podcast, and I'd committed to doing six. This is important, I can mention why. But I was cl- skipping through the audio, just checking on the quality. And it was like two hours long, two and a half hours long. And about an hour in, I, I, was, I was so anxious for whatever reason. And I was like, well, Kevin, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, da 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 And then I was like, all right, whatever. Click forward like an hour, and the same exact phrase came up. And it was like, well, Kevin, I'm gonna be respectful of your time. And I was like, (laughs) oh my God, this is terrible. (laughs) And I had this like lip smacking tick, and like all this stuff was like, oh, the shame, the shame. And uh, I committed to six because if you only do one, you're going to quit, or most people will. So you commit to six, and the question I asked myself, Because the success, you ask what makes it successful. There are actually a bunch of questions baked into that. There's what makes the product something that could be successful. There's what makes it something that spreads. But there's also why it survived, which is maybe the better question. If I had tried to do something fancier, like fill in the blank, something that is produced really well, like uh, Freakonomics Radio, I don't have the experience or the resources. I would have become overwhelmed, and I would have quit. So rule number one is, if you want something to be successful, you can't quit after two episodes. (laughs) You actually have to get to a point where your learning curve hockey sticks. And I believe, for my format, for podcasts in general, that's at least six episodes. So the the questions that I think have allowed it to succeed for me and for me to feel successful doing it, because I enjoy it, is number one, how do I keep this fun? Number two, what would it look like if it were simple? Mm Like I ask myself that question more and more all the time now. What would this look like if it were dead simple, stupid simple? OK, Ferris, I know you like feature creep. I know you love writing 700-page books. But like, let's hold back on that for a second. What would this look like if it were easy? And try that first. <laughs> uh, so I think those are a few things. But it's very, 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 very tactic-rich routines habits what was what is the book that you've gifted the most to other people what does the first 60 minutes of your day look like specifically exact times how do you make your co- yeah you have coffee how do you make your coffee you know what brand do you like why and just i trying to harness that ocd right. in a way that is helpful instead of making my relationships implode right something like that yeah so i think i think that's been it but scratching your own itch it's like if you have a guaranteed market of one, i.e., yourself, like you're ahead of ninety-nine percent of the entrepreneurs out there. Right.
2: Now you've done almost like what hundred plus podcasts. Probably
0: hundred fifty episodes. Okay.
2: So now you have a, a wide enough like sample size to see of these successful people. Are you seeing commonalities as as leading to their uh, success in their careers?
0: I, I think there are a few things that come to mind right away. The first is. Now, this could be a selection bias. Maybe I'm choosing people who are more prone to have certain things in common than others, or I'm attracted to people in a way that, uh, that biases this, but at least 80% of the people I've interviewed across all domains have a daily meditation practice of some type. Certainly, if you want to cut down on monkey mind, the first step is just to become aware of it and kind of observe it like a really shitty... Comedy in your head. It's like, what is my brain doing? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, and 20 minutes in the morning is a great way to do that. And I'm, I'm not particularly, I'm not particularly in favor of one versus another. I found TM, transcendental meditation, to be very helpful because it's presented in a very secular way. And I find the white noise of a mantra, the word mantra bugs me so much, but a word that you repeat over and over again to be very helpful. Uh, but Vipassana, there's a, there's a good book called Waking Up by Sam Harris. Sam Harris, who's a PhD in neuroscience, has been on the podcast and talked about this. Tara Brock, also fantastic. 80 plus percent have some type of meditation practice, even if they don't call it meditation. So I've, I've, for instance, interviewed, uh, Amelia Boone, incredible endurance athlete, the most successful female, uh, Endurance uh, athlete and obstacle course racing in the world. But also in like 2012, at the world's toughest modern. I think it was about 1,200 competitors, ni- probably 90% male. She came in second place out of everybody. That's a 24 hour race. I mean, she is super tough. And uh, you know, she said, well, I don't really have a meditation practice. And I was like, what do you do when you're running? And she's like, I, I either listen to like, one track over and over again, or I sing one track to myself over and over again. I was like, well, that sounds a whole hell of a lot like meditation to me. <laughs> uh, and uh, then Arnold Schwarzenegger, for instance, this was a really cool example. He did, he does everything <laughs> 100% Arnold. Like when he goes, he really goes. And uh, he did, I think it was Transcendental Meditation for a year. And then he felt like he hit a certain plateau in the benefits, and he stopped. But he said that the benefits persisted for decades. Very, very cool idea. Uh, you know, the, pro- the, pos- the, the prospect of that is very exciting. So meditation would be one. Uh, two, of the males, and um, we, could, we could theorize as to why this is the case, but of the males, a high percentage of the interviewees over the age of 50 skip breakfast. Very high percentage. Uh, Wim Hof, General uh, Stanley McChrystal, tick, 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 there's a long <coughs> list. Pavel Tsatsulin, uh, the Russian who, who, who effectively brought kettlebells to the US, remember I asked him, my usual sound check question is, what do you have for breakfast? And he's like, breakfast, coffee. <laughs> I was like, we need more of a sound check. He's like, Tim, I like to keep it simple. I was like, ah, all right, all right. Uh, Pavel's awesome. One of my favorite episodes. Uh, let's see. Uh, the, I find just as interesting as the patterns, I find the differences reassuring. Right? Because, of course, I think we're pa- we're pattern recognition machines, so I'm looking for, like, the secrets. It's like, okay, like just, like, net, net. Like, give me the... Give me the what do 80% of these people have in common? So I can just like do that, that's my recipe, and then I'll like have everything that I want. Great. Do everything that I want, be happy, oh that'd be fantastic. But what I've realized over time is that what appears to be the case, because you have, at first I was interviewing all these people and they're like, I wake up at 4:30 in the morning, like Jocko Willink, the most decorated special operations commander from the Iraq War. You know, it's like wake up at 4:30. And uh, I had a string of about 10 of these interviews where they're like, I wake up at 4.30. I wake up at 5.00. And I was like, oh, God, I don't want to wake up at 4.30. <laughs> <laughs> for me, like, I'm waking up at the ass crack at dawn. is like 8.30. Like, that's a major effort for me because I go to bed so late. And I've historically done all my best writing between like 11 p.m. and like 4 or 5 a.m. And... Uh, then I had a few folks who were very late night. I was like, oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> Whew, that was close. And what I realized is, and there's a quote, I'm going to masquer it, but I th- I'm going to paraphrase here that I think it's W.H. Auden, A U D N. I might be getting the last name wrong, but routine in an intelligent man is a sign of ambition. And I think that what is important is not having a specific routine, it's having a routine. That's it. Like you have a routine. That allows you to preserve your decision making and in your creativity hit points, sorry, Dungeons and Dragons, for the things that actually matter. So that you're not waking up and every morning deciding what to have for breakfast. You're not waking up every morning and maybe deciding what to wear, right? Steve Jobs, et cetera. There are, I, I have quite a few friends who wear the same thing effectively every day. Uh, so, in what ways can you preserve your decision making budget? your creativity budget for the things that you are uniquely good at and that really matter? And the, the answer seems to be you have a lot of routines. And you can have your own routines. But what's important is that you have a routine or routines that you stick to for periods of time. Uh, that, that seems to be, and there are many, 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 many different routines, uh, but, but those would be a few. A lot of them, the majority of them are insomniacs, so take heart. So, just because you're an insomniac doesn't make you successful, but <laughs> seems to be a symptom or a, a common side effect of, of a lot of their behavior. And then scratching their own itch. Almost all of them uh, scratch their own itch. And this is actually super important. I think there's a lot of rah-rah like motivational speaker business advice out there that is utter horseshit. And I think one of the, the biggest delusions, illusions, or just hoaxes is like optimism. Think big. The passion's going to drive you. Bah, like That's how the people who are really successful are successful. That might be the story you read about in the magazines, because it makes for a fun hero's journey type of story. But the people that, that I've been most impressed by ask themselves all the time, what is the worst case scenario? They're budgeting for the downside. So in other, in other words, they're not using optimism to allow them to take action. They're not just like, "You know what, I'm going to jump off the cliff and grow wings on the, right, on the way down" or whatever the, you know, the, the cliche is uh, that you might find on like a calendar in office space. No, they're saying the way that I do things that other people think are high risk or other people think are risky, dangerous, whatever it might be, is because I th- I, I write down the worst-case scenarios, ask myself, what can I do to mitigate these things from happening? And then I ask myself, if they happen, what can I do to get back to where I am now? And I realize these like risky things are not risky at all. Right. They're totally reversible. They're just speed bumps if anything goes wrong. Really, in the grand scheme of things, and so they they get a lot of at bats. Mm-hmm. They're really good at capping the downside. Branson has said this, you know, as much as he has a lot of rah-rah stuff. Like you, you drill down into it, it's like he's really good at deciding like what is the most I can lose if I do X. What is the most time that I can lose if we do? Why, and then making decisions based on that sort of that uh, loss limit, if that makes sense. Um, so that's very heartening because I've never been. Uh, I mean, I would like to say I'm a follow my passion kind of guy. I get excited about things. I want to scratch my own itch, but I think that the real toolkit is getting really good at asking. You know, is this the condition that I so feared? What if? And, and once you sort of neuter the worst case scenarios and uh, depower them, you're like, oh yeah, this is fine. Like, this is totally fine. It's not any riskier than just like investing in watching a new TV series on Netflix. Like, maybe you get three episodes in, you're like, damn it, I can't believe I watched three hours of this crap. And you choose another series. It's not the end of the world. Right, right now, that's it's true. true. Narcos, watch Narcos. Very good. So, I can't wait for season two. So good. Yeah. Um, oh, that was such a head fake at the end, <sighs> but I'm kind of happy. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I digress. I know. Billions, um, also good. Yeah. Uh, but I digress again. Yeah.
2: No, when I saw Narcos, I didn't actually, like, some of the things that happened, I'm like, did this really happen? Oh, like, yeah. Keep,
0: yeah. 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 I spent a good amount of time in, in Colombia yeah. and uh, in Medellin yeah. on a road that was called the road of death because... Uh, Pablo Escobar's henchmen used to drop dead bodies down ravines on either side, and they would just be piled with bodies. So yeah, well, tough history. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really hard. To transition. So next time you're yeah. stuck on one hundred and one <laughs> in traffic, and you're like cursing the gods, be like, oh, at least sides of the road aren't littered with bodies. <laughs> could could be a lot worse. Yep, could be a lot worse. So, period. Break. All right. Period, semicolon. Some, next <laughs> transition. Don't use, don't use semicolons. Yeah, don't, don't no. use semicolons. I've seen many careers ended on this. Or M dashes. I love M dashes. Yeah. So lazy.
2: <laughs> now, are there plans to maybe write a book about these podcasts and the experience you've had?
0: You know, I've been toying with it. I put, I put some feelers out on, uh, on social media to see if people would be interested. Because usually when I end up doing something, it's when it's less painful to do it than to not do it. So the insomnia for me, I've actually become I'm much better at getting asleep. Much better at falling asleep. But uh, usually when I end up pulling a trigger on something, it's when it keeps me up for like four or five nights straight. Mm -hmm. And just like the ideas are coming, I'm like, God, stop, make it stop, I want to go to sleep. But it's that excitement, good stuff. uh, which is how the four-hour work week happened. It was like waking up and writing down stuff and be like, ah, let me go to sleep. Get out of my head, let me go to sleep. And uh, so for the last you know, week or two, the the idea of sort of distilling the patterns and learnings and the stuff that was like not in the podcasts also, like the experiments that I've done afterwards or in between or other interactions I've had with these guests, there are a lot of just really actionable, awesome habits and tools that I've actually tested. So well, let me take a poll. So how many people here have listened to the podcast? All right. Of those people, how many would be interested in, like, a distilled synopsis of the, the best lessons learned in the podcast? All right, so it's like a 60, 70 percent. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a decent chance. Excellent. I just think it would be and, and I'll tell you why also It's not the reason you might expect what, what I suffer from most, what pains me the most about the podcast. Is the like embarrassment of riches that comes out of a two and a half hour conversation? Because I do, I have one of these coming out a week. I don't have time to actually digest and reflect on all the stuff that I'm putting out. I do as much as I can, but I just don't have the bandwidth. And now I've done 150. I'm like, in part of me is like, I don't need to interview anybody else. (laughs) Like this is enough. Like I want to do it because I enjoy it, but I'm like. If you can't figure out how to improve any aspect of your life from these 150 people across like 100 different disciplines, (laughs) you're an idiot. Like Tim Ferriss talking to myself. So it's like go back and review, review, idiot. Like you've done tests before. (laughs) Life is the test. Start studying, or you're gonna like have a panic attack. So uh, this would give. If I were to go back and try to distill all this stuff, it would give me the incentive and opportunity to do exactly that, to go back and actually pull out all these things like, oh my God, that's yeah. right. Like the most successful people in the business and investing realm recommended sapiens. This book on evolutionary biology, effectively. It's like that's weird. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Maybe I should read sapiens. Yeah. Fill in the blank. There's so many examples like that.
2: So it should be done by July, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alas, I'm fast at many things. Book writing is not one of them. Gotcha. But uh, it, it wouldn't be. It certainly would not take as long as as some of the like soul crushing projects that I've allowed myself to right. expand from. Like Four Hour Chef was supposed to be 250 pages. Ended up 670. After 250 pages were cut, it's like what was I thinking? <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, I'll do 30% of the photographs myself. How hard could that be? Oh, yeah, turns out, photography, really yeah. tough to do well. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to learn from my mistakes.
2: So I got two more questions before we go back to the audience. Um, the first question um, is so good that I almost forgot it. Uh, <laughs> the, the first question is, uh, what are your plans? Where do you see Tim going in the next five years?
0: Tim in five years. Tim sees Tim. This is like Hulk speak. Uh, I see in the next five years, well, let me pause before I answer that to say I've never had reliable five-year plans, 10-year plans, or otherwise. And I treat my entire life as a series of two-week experiments and six-month projects because, and maybe this is just the way I cope with life and decision-making, but I feel like if you make a 5- or 10-year plan that you can reliably hit, almost by definition, you have to set a plan that is below your current capabilities. Like If you're an A student, you have to set a C-plus plan for it to be 100% achievable. That I think is just a great way to paint yourself into a very unattractive corner. So, two-week experiments, six-month projects is kind of how I view my whole life. if I had to guess, I would say five years, less hair uh, <laughs> better gymnastics, which is my new thing, one of my new things uh but larger picture, I see myself doing the podcast or some iteration of it, just t- deconstructing experts and world class performers on a much much larger scale uh, i just i think it'll be ten i think and want it to be 10 times bigger without sacrificing the nitty gritty, the nerdiness, or going into the details. It's like if I want to talk about exogenous ketones, which by the way, internet, are not androgynous ketones, exogenous ketones outside the body with like Dom D'Agostino, and talk about Navy SEALs and rebreathers and all this geeky shit for an hour and a half, Like that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and uh, if I'm having fun, hopefully other people will. And I, so I think that will continue to be a component, because whether or not I'm publishing it, that's what I'm doing anyway. So I'd like to, but by doing it publicly, I force myself to get better. It's a strong incentive to refine the the, the blade. Uh, I think that you know, there's a chance I'll have family. We'll see about that stuff. When I have a conversation about my thoughts on marriage and relationships. That's a whole separate thing that requires a lot more tequila. Or maybe a four-hour work week. Yeah, on that's a, child. a whole separate thing. Yeah, <laughs> four-hour parent not coming anytime soon. <laughs> Somebody was like, "What about the four hour relationship?" I'm like, "What is that a guide to one night stands?" I mean that's a best case scenario. I feel like other people have written that book don't need to do it. Uh, so uh, I think five years from now, I hope to be I hope to be better at simplifying. I think I'm good, but I know I can be better. I would like to I, this is the first time in a long time that I've ever said this. Like, I want to still be doing what I'm doing with the podcast. I'm just really loving it. And like, with books, if anybody, well, I know there are people in the audience who have written books, and I'm not going to have anybody confess their sins now, but it's like, you get through a book, and I remember I was 90% done with the four hour body, and I was talking to this author, and I'm like, ah. Oh. God, I'm so bored of this. Oh, God, I can't stand rereading these chapters. I'm 90% done. I'm almost there. He goes, oh, congratulations. You only have 50% left. And I was like, oh, God, you're so right. Oh. You know? And it's just so painful to give birth to these things. It's like crowning with like a you know Tony Robbins' head. That sounds terrible. But it's like, Tony, I love you. You know that. But it's just like an image of birthing. I, I would
2: have preferred Total Recall with
0: Arnold. and Or Claude.
2: Arnold Claude or something.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> eek, eek, probably also painful and kind of freaky. So let that haunt your dreams, everyone. <laughs> uh, but with the podcast, it's like I, when I finish a good interview, I did one with BJ Miller, especially with someone who's not widely known. BJ Miller is a palliative care and hospice expert who's helped a 1,000 people or so transition to death. And I finish, and I'm just like, I feel so much smarter after having had this conversation. And it just makes me so stoked to do it again a week later. So I want to be continuing along those lines. But I fully expect that uh, doors will close that I think are currently open. Doors will open that I don't even know exist at the moment. And that's part of the two-week experiment, six-month project plan. So I'm OK with that. Gotcha. And that's part of what makes it exciting, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I had a predictable plan, I think I would run out of steam. I wouldn't have the gasoline or the electricity, those of you who drive Teslas, to <laughs> make it work. Right. And I hope to be taking, I don't think I take myself too seriously, but I hope to even to a greater extent be embracing and creating absurdity in the world. and uh, laughing at myself, because I think it's very hard to get anything serious. I think it's really hard to get anything truly big and serious done if you take yourself too seriously. Another reason why I do drunk Q&As sometimes on the internet. I'm not drunk right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can
2: verify, yeah. Um, For the final question, uh, let's say you had a personal board of directors, and you could put three people on there living and dead. Who would those people be?
0: Personal board of directors, three people... I would say first few that come to mind would be Benjamin Franklin, the merry prankster himself. Just uh, such a colorful character and multifaceted, really incredible amateur who was able to best a lot of the professionals because of that beginner mind and lack of fear. And I think that prankster-like nature was very helpful. Uh, The Walter Isaacson biography of Franklin is so good. so, so good. Uh, it I slows down for me in the sort of last third, but the beginnings are so incredible. They're so really fantastic, highly recommended. Second, Richard Feynman, probably. The uh, physicist, I guess, from Caltech, largely associated with Caltech. Uh, another prankster, just like another polymath slash prankster. Who used to, in addition to being you know world class physicist at Los Alamos and whatnot, he would he became a, a safe breaker just to like annoy his superiors. I wouldn't suggest this in today's climate, but like he used to break into these safes at Los Alamos, take out like the top secret documents, and then put them on his boss's desk and then close the safe and just leave them there. <laughs> to, like, you know, not for extended periods of time, but just to, like cause his boss to have a complete panic attack. Uh, learn to play the bongos. Uh, had some debate with uh, an artist friend, and they got really fired up. And he was like, well, I'm going to teach you about science. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to teach you how to paint. So he got really into painting, and he would uh, go into strip clubs to paint strippers. Like, I love this guy. This like, <laughs> is hilarious. So uh, I think Feynman, although I, I might not be able to get a word in edgewise with him and Franklin at the same table, uh, and then probably need some like serious Serious person with some scars. So, I mean, not that they aren't serious, but uh, maybe like a Marcus Aurelius type. Who's like somebody who's had like the weight of the world literally on their shoulders and has had to make life and death decisions. Like, yeah, I think uh, maybe a Marcus Aurelius. Not sure if I can get him to laugh much. Maybe a Musashi, although he'd probably kill all of us. Musashi Miyamoto or Miyamoto Musashi. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'd say Marcus Aurelius. I'll go with him. Sounds good. Uh, so thank you so much for coming out. I listen to your podcast every week. Thank you. And uh, to actually see a face that moves with them is a neat experience. <laughs> His head is so much bigger than I thought. Do you look like a bridge troll? I apologize for that. Oh. Oh, sorry, I look like a bridge troll? No, I look like a bridge troll. Oh, this is good. We're getting off, ah, All right. up. limbering ah, no, up. No. I look like a bridge troll. Look at this thing. It's like a, it's like a I don't know, narwhal or something. All right, continue, sorry. So
1: I actually have a Molly question, which oh. by the way, where is she? Molly. Totally thought you would have brought her with you.
0: Yeah. So Molly is my my pup. She's about eleven months old. She is hiking right now, so she's probably in the Marin Headlands with Excellent. with a walker.
1: That was not the full my question. Yeah. Um.
0: So I know she's eleven months old. I actually have a nine month old puppy. So follow a lot of what you talk about in your Five Bullet Fridays about mm-hmm. her and the the toy that spits out food. Um. And I know that you do a lot of testing experimentation on yourself, and I was just wondering, as you're raising a puppy, you know, not inhumanely, but do you do any kind of testing experimentation in her training? <laughs> right. So testing experimentation with Molly. So in between the beatings, you mentioned humane. No, uh, no beatings. No beatings. Uh, I- I'm testing all the time, and uh, you know, it's not like I'm putting her in a Skinner box or anything. Um, but I think that it is a great as, as with, I think, many things in life, like how we do anything is how we do everything, sometimes. And I found that getting better at training Molly, being attuned to her needs, but also being consistent with my training, and sequencing the training in the right way. So just in in The 4-Hour Chef, when I talk about meta-learning and disks like deconstruction, selection, sequencing. I approach dog training the same way, which is really just animal training, including humans. So don't shoot the dog, great framework to start with. And uh, I think crate training, huge. Even if you have an older dog, uh, I think that clicker training for just precision, super helpful. Karen Pryor is pretty good for that, also. and. Uh, training for attention as a prerequisite to all other skill training. And you can do that very easily by, for instance, getting a treat in one hand and a clicker in the other. And you hold the treat in front of your dog's face after they sit. And then you, you you hold the treat out to the side. Their eyes will travel with it. Wait until their eyes come back to your eyes. And then you click the clicker and you give them the treat. And by doing that in various ways, you instill in them the habit of constantly checking in with you using eye contact. And it makes everything else come, sit, stay, down. Infinitely easier. So thinking about how to sequence those skills is very is very fun. Uh, training for safety first, trick second. It's also something I look very carefully at. So I will do timed stays. So like down stay, and I'll do like she has to do it for five minutes. And then I'll give her like You know the beluga caviar of dog treats. But uh, to do that, you also need a no reward marker. There are different ways to do this. So the reward marker would be click treat. No reward marker, like you can use uh uh-oh. You can use different types of verbal cues to say, you screwed up, in other words. And always getting your dog sorry. This is something I'm really into. So using sit for please is another thing that I think is very helpful for safety and is a prerequisite skill. Anytime she wants anything, sit. And that's like, duh, okay, tell me something I don't know, but I'll give you a variation that you might not think of. Anytime I open a door, she sits first, I go out next, then she looks at me, and I go, okay, and she comes to the door. This means your dog never jumps out of the car when you open a hatchback and gets hit by another car. Will never happen. Uh, If, well, I shouldn't say never, never say never, but. You've just decreased the likelihood infinitely. So those those are a few things that I've played around with. But I think the sequencing of skills is something that most dog training books do extremely poorly. There's one book that I'm hoping to acquire and just give away for free, quite frankly. It's really thin. It's called Command Performance. And it's a short compilation of like two pages per behavior. Uh, put together by the Whole Dog Journal. I'm sure it's based somewhere in Northern California with a name like that. Maybe, Port- <laughs> maybe Portland. Uh, and I, I would just I would start with that. I think it'll go a really long way. There are also some YouTube channels that I think are helpful. Kiko Pup, K I K O Pup is one that I found very helpful. But you run into the same issue that you run into with any type of coach. Like Jiu Jitsu is very problematic for this. Everything is where you, the instructor walks in they just kind of decide on the technique de jour. And then they teach you that, but there's no sequence. There's right. no progression. And with dogs or humans, if you want the best result, you need progression. So those gotcha. would be, Yeah, long answer. but um,
2: Thanks. Okay. I have an online question. Um, there's a lot of talk and focus on human longevity. What would you actually recommend people begin doing as they approach their 40s and beyond for a minimum effective
0: dose? Man, if you're in your 40s, it's just too late. <laughs> Buy a, pick out your casket at Costco. No, I, uh, I just, I'm almost there, myself. Uh, the uh, The preface has to be, I am not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. This is not medical advice, blah, blah, blah. Talk to qualified professionals. But if I were to. Or maybe I am already, if I were to pursue increasing lifespan, it would not be it would not be at the expense of performance. number one, I just enjoy performance too much, so it can't make me like a sexless, listless depressed person, which a lot of things that extend lifespan do. <laughs> like really, really extended caloric restriction, like yeah, have fun with that. you'll wish you were going to die sooner. Uh, so I'm not going to do that, but uh, I do fasts to purge precancerous cells. Like by the time you're 40, almost everybody will have what you could consider precancerous or cancerous cells. What you don't want is uncontrolled growth of the cells. And you can, you can affect that by understanding the, the idiosyncrasies of cancer metabolism. But just to keep it simple, you want to experience ketosis and or fasting for semi-extended periods of time. To me, that means at least two to three days. This is all a work in progress, but it's based on good literature. So I would do, say I do one three-day fast, meaning water, per month. Typically, I'll finish Thursday dinner and then fast to Sunday dinner. And uh, I may combine that with this is addressing cancer in part. There are other mortality causes, of course. Uh, But I might use uh, hyperbaric oxygen at like 2.5 atmospheres for 60 to 90 minutes three times a week. That's straight from Dominic D'Agostino, who I had on the podcast, who's looked at the use of hyperbaric oxygen, not only ketogenic diet and fasting, but also exogenous ketones, like mixing up a powder and drinking it like Gatorade, and how that can extend lifespan in rats and different species. Uh, other things I would consider would, of the if we're looking at pills, because everybody asks me about this, I would say the medication that has the most support that I find compelling would be metformin right now. Glucophage. So you could look up metformin. There are side effects, but I do know a lot of MDs who are using it prophylactically to extend... Uh, to decrease the likelihood of dying from a few different things.
2: Okay,
0: those would be first to mind.
2: Excellent.
0: Don't drive a car. <laughs> Maybe number three. Yeah. Um, quick question: How did you manage to conquer your insomnia,
1: and what's the delta from for our body to now? Mental interventions, physical ones, and especially when it comes to mental ones, how did you figure out, or how could one figure out what is keeping them awake at night, or what makes their sleep quality poor?
0: Good question. So insomnia, what has helped me the most? Uh, There are a few things. Uh, I would say they're the obvious ones, but sometimes the obvious are important. Uh, Let me address the variable question first. So there are are controlled studies where you're looking for a certain p-value, and you're looking for a certain power, and you care a lot about isolating variables. If you care about results first and foremost, You can still identify what the primary movers are, but I'll do it after the fact. What I mean by that is right now I have extreme elbow tendonitis. Actually, I've fixed most of it, but that's that's a whole separate conversation. And I did it by throwing maybe six variables at it at a time. And I do six at a time. And then if it helped, I could then, because I cared first and foremost about training, I could remove variables and see what the impact reversal of effects, et cetera, was. So generally, I'm throwing quite a bit at the problem and then removing variables once I have a winning combination. For me, with insomnia, it was replacing coffee with tea. You can go with pretty high-powered tea. Or you can start with decaf tea and actually take <laughs> a, like a Vivarin caffeine pill, cut it into quarters. So now you have, let's just say, hypothetically, 25 milligrams a quarter. And you can start decreasing your caffeine intake as a known quantity, as opposed to a cup of coffee, because it's very highly, highly variant. So you could have like decaf plus 100 milligrams first day, right? And then you do that for three days. Next, you go to 75 milligrams, 50, 25. So that's one of the more effective ways to decaf yourself. Uh, that was one. Is then limiting caffeine consumption past about 5 p.m. But everybody's heard that stuff. Two that I found tremendously impactful that I did test in isolation would be, one, some type of meditation in the morning. So 20 minutes, let's say. You could start with 10, use an app like Headspace, which has, has been very popular with a lot of my fans. Uh, meditation in the morning uh, depends a lot on your cause of insomnia. For me, it was the monkey mind. It was just the machinery. I couldn't get the, the cogs and the wheels to stop moving. I was, all, I was still in problem-solving mode. Meditation in the morning, reading fiction before bed, right? to take you into a storytelling or story consuming as opposed to problem solving mode. Using Flux or something like Flux to change the light emitted from your laptop or screen. And last, uh, I will, how should I do this? Uh, A friend of mine. (laughs) found uh, microdosing with psychedelics to be very helpful in a subhallucinogenic level with perhaps psilocybin or something along those lines uh did a, did a podcast with G, with James Fadiman talked a lot about this god forbid you think i'm suggesting that i would never <laughs> highly irresponsible but you know i don't make the news i just report the news <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> what the we're gonna do another online question. Um, you were known to be an aggressive marketer for the Four Hour Work Week. How does 2016 Tim react to 2007 Tim's pitch and asks?
0: <laughs> you know, uh, it's a good question. Uh, 2007 Tim. 2007 Tim was, I think, he was tolerable, and uh, for for the for the probably pushed a little too hard. What he didn't know. And he couldn't have known is what really bu- what really busy actually means at a high level. So I would, for instance, like shoot off an email to someone to try to get them to look at a ten minute uh, excerpt of the book that I took ages to put together, and it's like this will only take ten minutes, and then they would reply with like I don't have the time, and I'm like, how can you know I didn't say this, but in my head I'm just like how can you not have ten minutes? That's ridiculous, you know, and get very offended. And now I get it. Like, now I get it. I get 1,500 emails a day. I get uh, uh, probably 100 unsolicited books sent to me a week. A week. I took a photograph of it at one point. I took a stack. And I'm just like, if I don't get back to you, here's one reason of probably 100 why. And uh, so now I have much more empathy and compassion for that kind of thing. So it's like if somebody doesn't get back to me for months, Never attribute, this is another quote I find very useful, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence, but I would add to that, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence or busyness. You know? Don't take, mm-hmm. try not to take it personally. Assume it's not personal. Give, you know, give yourself the benefit of the doubt, because you're going to be the one who takes like the imaginary shrapnel and carries it around with you, like acid in a vessel for, for weeks on end if you hold grudges. So. I think he did a pretty good job, but uh, could definitely be a little overbearing at points. But I don't know if that's something I would change. I don't know. I mean, I'm too maybe superstitious to think that that would be, you know, I'm pretty happy with how things worked out. So I'm not sure I would have changed anything. Yeah. But uh, I would have told him to be a little nicer to his joints. (laughs) Very aggressive with joints and have suffered a lot of pain and surgery as a result of that. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Hi, Tim. I have a question around the um, experiments and projects that you lead and do on your own. I'm wondering about vision. So you may not have a five-year plan, but what is the vision towards what you orient towards on your day-to-day basis um, in terms of, like, moment by moment, who are you becoming? And I'm wondering, what would that look like for you? What's that vision?
0: Yeah, the vision vision for me is is a tricky one, uh, unless I take it really literally. And it's like in like the Dances with Wolves, like sweat lodge kind of sense, uh, which that's also maybe a conversation that requires some level of other substances. But the, uh, in terms of who I would like to be, I mean, I saw this. It's so cheesy. And I have a better answer, but I'll put it out there anyway. Because I do think about it with Molly. It's like I saw this billboard at one point. It said, be the person your dog thinks you are. And I was just like, that's actually really good advice. <laughs> like, that's actually really, really <laughs> profound advice if you kind of think about it. But the vision, I think, would be... Let me try to back into this. So the why build the podcast? Like, why? I mean, why put out more books? Why do these various things? Why focus again on editorial? Like, I'm backing out of the startups, focusing more on the creation and the interviewing <laughs> and the research. And... Uh, I feel like that is my Archimedes lever for larger change. And to give a precise example, I've spent a lot of time around lawmakers and politicians. I can't play that game. I have too many skeletons outside of my closet, too many in my closet, I use way too many drugs, uh, and I'm not not good at lying, which is sort of a prerequisite for that form of theater, uh, at least part of the time. But what I've realized is if I have a very well-educated, very well-healed, in some cases, influential audience, I can help steer that ship from afar, kind of like a a football coach calling commands without actually having to have my hands on the wheel. I can influence it. Mm -hmm. And I've used that already to affect certain things, like the legality of shark fin importation in a couple of states in the US. Uh, in the process of funding research into using, for instance, psilocybin to address treatment-resistant depression at Johns Hopkins. And that is, those are experiments that will ultimately lead me to probably change or attempt to change laws and policy. Because you can be a chess piece on the board. You can be the best piece on the board, which is better than being a pawn. That's kind of where we all start, I think. Then you can be a chess player. Then you can get very good. Then you can be the person who designs the game in the first place. And ultimately, in that sort of cascade, that's the most powerful position. Yeah, and then you change the game. Yeah, then you change the game. So I think that on a greatest impact for the greatest number of people, I don't want to lose the one-to-one, which is why the podcast and providing people with things they can start now, immediately start using tomorrow or today is important to me. That's the micro that can affect the macro, but directly affecting the chessboard is something I want to do, but I'm playing a long game with that. Because to do it right, I have to approach it very, very methodically. For me personally, I think that I want to be more, and I I am much better, but to reflect more on what, like to be happy with what I have and to constantly reflect on how fortunate I am in so many ways. Because if I don't do that, nothing I get will ever make me happy, content, fulfilled. And I'm really good at achieving. like I can knock down walls. I'm really good at it. But that is only one side. It's only one piece of the whole equation. And on top of that, I would say, and this is a twofer, is being practicing and immersing myself, recognizing that I'm a social animal. Humans are social animals. So spending a lot of time... In groups. That means mixed groups, meaning uh, mixed gender. It also means, and this is very out of favor as a topic of conversation, but like small groups of men for me and spending periods of time in that environment. It's just, I find it ex- inexplicably, in a way, therapeutic. And I think that if you look at our evolutionary biology, you look at tribal societies, my most recent podcast with Sebastian Younger gets into this quite a bit. We're in such a sensitive political climate. I'm not telling you to run around and touch everybody, but like there's almost there's like no physical contact. Yeah. And there's uh, it's extremely, uh, I think, problematic for us as organisms to, uh, to to live the way we currently live. So I think I need that, and part and parcel with that is developing greater compassion and empathy, or just rediscovering that. So long answer. I apologize, guys, but that's if I had to reflect on it for me personally, that would be. Yeah, thank you. Yes.
2: Good. We'll do one online question and then one more in person question. So for the online question, um, you've experimented with interview structure of your podcast a few times, you know, sharing a bottle of wine with AstroTeller. What has worked the best?
0: I've tried many things in interview formats. I've also tried non-interview formats for the podcast, and what part of what? Is great about treating things as an experiment and being very vocal about the fact that you're doing that is that you get like hall passes to do all sorts of zany, harebrained shit, which is great. So uh, I've done the wine, Uh, no big surprise. There's a point where, like, there's a tipping point where it's like you've, wine makes you funnier. And then you just feel like you're getting funnier. But you're no longer funny. There's definitely a point where the whole scale flips on that. But format-wise, what I have found to work very well with my guests is at least an hour and a half, up to three hours. Once you get to three, most people just start running out of gas. Uh, I break the interview generally in my mind into thirds. First third would be developing rapport offering vulnerabilities of my own. So if you hear me offering stories of my own in the beginning, it's not because I want it to be the Tim Ferriss Show, even though it literally is. I don't want it to be just me talking. I'm offering vulnerable pieces so that they will reciprocate. And that's something I learned from Neil Strauss. It worked really well. Uh, So I'm trying to crack the ice. First third is basically getting through some of their bio. Or not getting through. It's interesting stuff. Covering some of their bio, current projects, and breaking the ice and also getting through some of their sound bites. Uh, second third would be audience questions oftentimes, or questions informed by the audience. And then the, the tail end of that f- second third is whatever they want to pitch or talk about or promote, if they have something. Then uh, rapid-fire questions, and sort of my usual set. And then the close. And I find that structure works very well for me. In my experience, it takes at least an hour, sometimes more, unless you know the person already, to get through their usual shtick. And if you do a lot of media, as I do, I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else. We talked about preserving your like, decision-making creati- creativity hit points. One of the ways you do that is you figure out which stories and answers work really well, and you just use those over and over again. But I want to get original material, so you have to burn through that. and It takes about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, And uh, that's the general format. Uh, There's a lot of prep that goes into that, of course. Uh, Other formats that work very well that I hadn't seen any other podcasts try. But again, asking the question, what would this look like if it were easy? I was like, man, it's really hard to schedule with these people. These are really, really busy people. It's super hard to schedule. What if I just had the questions submitted and voted on Reddit or Facebook or somewhere, and then took the top 10, emailed them, bought them a mic, ATR2100, my favorite kind of all-purpose mic, USB, uh, on Amazon Prime, shipped it to them. It's just like, you know what? Record whenever you want. (laughs) We don't have to schedule a time. Just repeat the question, the person who asked it, and then give the answer. And uh, some of those have turned out spectacularly well. Uh, Maria Popova of Brain Pickings, Killed it. So good. Sam Harris killed it. Just so, so good. Some of them are better than others, of course. Uh, but uh, there are quite a few formats that work well. I do like the wine, but I've realized you got to segue into the wine like halfway through, or you're going to be really sloppy <laughs> for the end. So I think the Matt Mullenweg episode that I did, mm-hmm. where we started with tea and then to te- tequila for the half, second half, that
1: was a good format. Right. We didn't get too off the rails.
2: Worked that well.:
1: In the many podcasts and books that you've written, you've done a tremendous amount of individual experiments, uh, and so have your guests. But my question is like, okay, let's get back to your, um, your tribe here that you want. Um, let's say say if you have a bunch of adult followers and you, know, you want to make your own tribe, what would you basically have them do, whether it's for you know, their own betterment or for your own personal experimentation? Meaning, what would I have them do for like the greater good, or what would I have them do to solidify their own tribe? Oh, uh, I mean, actually, like let's just say you have an adult boot camp. You know, you yeah. get like a, a group of people, however, so, let's just say I don't know, twenty people or something like that for yeah. thirty days. And I'm kind of wondering, like, would you run an experiment, uh, or would you if I wanted them, them to be as tight as possible after that... the fact?
0: If I wanted them to be as tight, tightly bonded.
1: Actually, that's part of the question. You know, yeah. I guess, what, what would your goal be? Because, I mean, like I said, for their own betterment or for your own experimentation.
0: Yeah. If I had an adult boot camp with 20 people, I would have uh, equal, this might come off the, the wrong way, but I, either equal numbers of men and women or just men. And I would find someone who's in my position, who's female, to lead the equivalent for women. Because I would like to think I have empathy, but I don't have enough... Empathy to understand what it's like to be a woman. I just, I'm not a woman, right? <laughs> Last I checked. So uh, it, it could be split, in which case there would be like together activities, but also sort of gender specific. Not gender specific, they'd just be, they'd be doing this exact same thing. They would just be uh, in different groups. Um, and the activities, so I wouldn't have a goal, it wouldn't be like, you know, fight club, Operation Mayhem at the end or anything. I, I wouldn't have like a, a single thing for them to do afterwards, potentially. Uh, actually, I take that back. There would be a lot of hardship and suffering. Uh, no, I'm serious. There's too, little, there's too little productive suffering in the US right now. And it's like, oh, you got 27th place. Here's a gold star. No, that does not help anyone. It really doesn't. So uh, getting good at failing and overcoming it and coming back from it, that's the real world. Like That's what I want to train people to be able to handle. Because right? if they're used to like fighting each other in those big blow-up sumo suits, and they're like, "I'm awesome," and they go out and then get like round kicked in the head by a UFC fighters, they're just gonna be like, "What the fuck just happened?" Yeah, you know? they won't be able to recover from. It. So I would have probably some element of fasting because most people are not familiar with the true sensation of being hungry. I wasn't for decades, uh, like really hungry. Not like, oh my god, I'm grumpy. I haven't. I'm hangry. I haven't had. Cashews in four hours, no.
1: <laughs>
0: like, really hungry. Like, you haven't eaten in three days, hungry. Uh, and uh, there'd be an element of fasting. There'd be an element of physical discomfort or pain. I'd probably have people doing outdoor activities like building debris huts or something like that. Um, no screens whatsoever. Uh, no alarm clocks. So, for the first few days, people would come in, decaf. They would be. Titrating off of caffeine, and they would wake up whenever they woke up, like for the first time, maybe getting the actual rest that they need in 10 years. And uh, I would spend a lot of the time, and this is straight from Sebastian Younger, I think he was talking about what he would do in ninth or 10th grade. I would have people working on projects, like small projects that were very difficult. And we would rotate in terms of who was leading a given group. So let's just say they'd be small groups, maybe four, like five groups of four. Everybody would have an opportunity to sort of lead a project. And uh, it would not be totally democratic at all. I could be like, okay, like you guys, like, like people who are like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Okay, ones, raise your hand. Okay, you're the dictators. That's it. Everybody has to do exactly what you said. This is not. Like a flat organization. No, Like you are like the platoon leader. That's it. Or maybe not the best analogy. You're the dictator. And uh, every exercise would be intended to put people out of their comfort zone, physically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally so that when they come out the other end, they are better at this is probably the only part that I might teach, because we do post-mortems on all of these would be the ability to learn quickly and the ability to teach other people. And my goal all along, in a way, has been to create like a benevolent army of people who are expert learners, like incredibly high-level, top 1% meta-learners, who can learn to be better at anything I've done, who can then teach people, in turn, to be better than they are. That seems like the right trend. So I think that's I've actually fantasized about this, like adult boot camp thing. <laughs> Haven't we all? Uh, i fantasized about it a lot, but it would just be like camp pain. It would just be like it would. It's not. But I mean, you look at the success for like Tough Mudder, Spartan Race. There's actually a good doc coming out soon. I really enjoyed it. I know the guy who, who produced it uh, called "The Rise of the Suffer Fests. I think there's part of us that really subconsciously yearns to be tested. Like nobody's really tested. These days in like in a, in a holistic way like a really painful way there's no rite of passage so I, I, but I think we, we like we're programmed to need that to want that so yeah I think I think the camp might get pretty low reviews <laughs> given the amount of pain involved yeah. or I just have like a, I mean, a religious following of masochists. I don't know uh, but yeah I do I do fantasize about it but yeah the, the goal would be master meta learners who have a high pain tolerance who have expanded their sphere of comfortable action, and are really good at helping other people to do the same thing.
2: Well, Tim, thank you very much for coming and speaking to us. Really appreciate it. My
0: pleasure. Hey, guys. This is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.